If you're tired of these promos, supporters get the podcast early and ad-free. Just go to donate.bogosity.tv for the links to sign up. Welcome to the Bogosity Podcast for the week of September 24, 2023. The podcast that's brought to a low boil. This is your host, Shane Killian. Next week is the fifth weekend in the month, and that means no podcast. But for now, let's singulate the news of the bogus. We'd hoped that as time went on, we'd get more answers about the Jan 6 Capitol occupation, but it seems we just get more questions. And there have been so many of them from the beginning. There are concerns that what little footage we've been able to see contradicts a lot of what they claim happened. Most of the footage we aren't allowed to see at all. And now, here they are, conducting secret trials that fly in the face with how justice in this country is supposed to work. Unlike the Proud Boys trial and the Oath Keepers trial, which were plastered all over the place with everything except the actual defense arguments, here we have a rioter who was tried, convicted, and sentenced completely in secret and no one will say why. Unlike hundreds of others, the Samuel Lazar case has been kept completely under seal with no explanation even after he was released from prison, while many others are serving years. Lazar came to the Jan 6 protests with tactical gear and protective goggles and is on video attacking two officers with chemical spray and yelling, Let's get their guns, there's a time for peace, and there's a time for war. So he did a lot worse than most of the others who were convicted, including Enrique Tario, who was sentenced to 22 years for the riot, even though he wasn't even there. Lazar's court docket doesn't even have any public record of a conviction or a sentence, and yet we know from the Bureau of Prisons that Back in March, he was sentenced to 30 months in prison and was just released, presumably on parole, or perhaps he was credited for time served since he'd been held in pretrial detention since July 2021. But there's absolutely no public record of this. Neither the DOJ nor Lazar's lawyers responded to multiple requests for comment from the Associated Press. Back in May, the judge in the case rejected requests to release any sealed records about the case, records that are supposed to be public unless there's a compelling need for secrecy, in which case there should at least be a record of that finding. But attorneys for a coalition of news outlets who asked the judge to unseal the records said, quote, These filings are all subject to the First Amendment and common law rights of public access. The public docket provides no explanation as to why, despite the strong presumption of transparency in this circuit, these judicial records are not available to the public. Apparently, his own mother didn't even know if he was being sentenced or when he was coming home. Although secret plea hearings aren't unheard of, they're supposed to be unsealed ahead of sentencing. George Washington University criminal law professor Randall Eliason said that, in his 12 years as a federal prosecutor, he didn't know of any case where a sentencing hearing and sentence were placed under seal. Many other Jan 6 defendants have deals with the government, but none of them resulted in their cases being resolved in secret. 
Eliason said, quote, The fact that he also got sentenced, went to prison, and is already out? That whole situation is just unusual. And yet, even with this information coming out through the AP and not through internet sources that the news media can write off as conspiracy theories, there is still no coverage of this in legacy media outlets. Do people really not get why we don't trust anything they say about what happened on January 6th? If you're looking for a way to support this channel, but you don't have any spare cash and you can't stand ads, you can do so by generating your own cryptocurrency. Use the links at the bottom of the description to follow the link to odyssey.com to listen to the podcast and see all of my YouTube videos as well. Just watching videos will produce cryptocurrency for the creator and yourself. And since Odyssey is always monetized and never censored, you'll have no problem seeing all the videos from your favorite creators. You can also use the library credits you created Odyssey to tip creators and even purchase paid content. Earn library credits through various rewards, including daily view rewards and the number of shares and invites. And you can interact with creators in all sorts of ways, including like and dislike, comment, boost a post by supporting it, repost it, and share to other sites, all while earning crypto for the creator. Easily monetize yourself and your favorite creators using cryptocurrency without advertising. Use the link below to visit this channel on odyssey.com and see many of your other favorites there as well. Another lingering question we've had about Jan 6 is just how many government informants there were both in the planning and during the attack. There seem to have been dozens, if not hundreds, so many that it really looks like an FBI operation similar to the Gretchen Whitmer kidnapping hoax. Turns out, not only do we not know how many informants there were, the FBI didn't know either, because there were so many they lost count. They ended up having to do an audit of the confidential human sources that were present that day just to figure out how many there were. In the Proud Boys trial, it came out that there were dozens, but the corrupt prosecution got the corrupt judge to ban the defense from mentioning any more than eight of them, which was a number so low it stretched the credulity of even the New York Times. And we know at least one of them was communicating with his handler as the events unfolded. These informants found out that, in many cases, they were actually dealing with informants from other field offices. So the Washington field office asked FBI headquarters to figure out how many there were. Although we don't know the exact number, then Capitol Hill Police Chief Stephen Sund said there were at least 18 in the crowd that day. And this is just the FBI informants, even though we know the DHS and other agencies had their informants present too, although again, we don't know how many. Sund had said there were at least 20 from the DHS. The House Judiciary Committee sent a letter to FBI Director Christopher Wray saying, quote, We recently learned from a former senior FBI official that there was internal ambiguity about how many FBI CHSs were present at the Capitol on January 6, 2021, so much so that the FBI had to put out a poll to determine the exact number of FBI sources present that day. We also learned that at least one FBI CHS was in communication with his handler that day as events unfolded. 
This new information reinforces our existing concerns about the FBI selection, vetting, and use of CHSs. They mention an interview they had with Stephen D'Antuono, then assistant director in charge of the Washington field office, who testified that he became aware after the fact of informants from other field offices, as well as informants who were there on their own accord. Quote, This new information is extremely concerning. It suggests that the FBI cannot adequately track the activities and operations of its informants, and that it lost control of its CHSs present at the Capitol on January 6. These revelations reinforce existing concerns identified by Special Counsel Durham about the FBI's use of and payment to CHSs who have fabricated evidence and misrepresented information. The Justice Department Inspector General also identified critical problems in the FBI's CHS program, including the FBI's failure to fully vet CHSs and the FBI's willingness to ignore red flags that would call into question an informant's reliability. They asked Ray to provide a briefing on how informants were used on Jan 6, all debriefing documents from informants, and all source documents relating to Christopher Steele. Even at that, this is just about the informants who were there on the day. We have no clue how many informants the FBI had with the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, and other organizations who were constantly sending information to and getting orders back from their handlers. And when you have prominent figures like Lazar in the previous story and Ray Epps, who we've discussed over and over again, getting secret trials and slaps on the wrist, it's enough to call the whole sequence of events into question. It's not just the fact that informants lie. We also know from other cases that informants have pushed others into trespassing and breaking other laws and even leading the activities they were supposed to be there to prevent. It's been over two and a half years, so nothing could be furthered from continued secrecy. The FBI and the rest of the government need to tell us all about the informants, release all the video, and give us all the information they have about what happened. The only reason for them not to do that is if they're corrupt liars. If you're on the Wi-Fi in a coffee shop or hotel, anyone on that network can get your traffic. Do you really trust all of those strangers? For that matter, do you really trust your ISP? A VPN can protect you from prying eyes, disguise your location, and even foil government censors. It's essential in this day and age. So go to vpn.pagosity.tv and you'll be taken to BoxPN. Starting at just $2.99 a month, you can get unlimited high-speed connections to VPN servers all over the world. And they don't log connections, so your privacy is assured. Traveling abroad, just VPN home. And don't worry about what those other governments are doing. Back at home, stop your ISP from traffic shaping and messing with the quality internet access you're paying good money for. You can connect from multiple machines at once, including your smartphone or tablet, and it supports all the secure standards, including OpenVPN and SSTP. Bypass sensors and surveillance with your own secure VPN connection. Go to vpn.pagosity.tv. Moving on to another story we've been covering and asking a lot of questions about, the unfolding Hunter Biden saga. This isn't really an update, just an overview of a website that has set up a very thorough timeline of everything we know to date. 
The Whistleblower Protection Site Empower Oversight is publishing the timeline and keeping it up to date. Consider this a good chance to quickly review what's happened and why it's important. It begins in 2018 with Joseph Ziegler, one of the IRS whistleblowers we've recently heard from, opening an investigation into Hunter Biden's very suspicious financial activity. Throughout 2019, there's all sorts of financial crimes, money laundering, and tax fraud charges being investigated. But notably, May was when prosecutors first denied the IRS request to follow their policy of interviewing Biden within 30 days of opening an investigation. With the first search warrant came the judge who made inappropriate comments and recused herself, delaying the case another four months. October is when they first become aware of the infamous laptop, and Biden's ownership is confirmed in November. In December, Ziegler drafts the search warrant, and the FBI takes custody of the laptop and hard drive. By the way, if you want to know all the gory details of what's on the laptop, I'm linking to the independent Biden laptop report. January 2020 is when Gary Shapley, another of the IRS whistleblowers, is assigned as supervisor of the investigation. Also of note is that U.S. Attorney Leslie Wolf is put in charge of the whole investigation. That'll matter later on. February, prosecutors tell investigators not to interview Hunter Biden because of the Iowa caucuses. Note that Hillary and the Bidens get this consideration while Trump doesn't. His trials are scheduled for a slap in the middle of primary season. Various examinations continue as Joe Biden wins the primaries and secures the nomination. By the way, all of these are footnoted with sources. June is when Shapley and Ziegler start launching complaints that the DOJ has made a concerted effort to delay as long as they can making search warrants and interviewing key witnesses. In the same month, the FBI interviews sources confirming Burisma bribed both Joe and Hunter Biden, which is further corroborated in the coming months. But in September, Wolf says they can't search Biden's Delaware residence because of, quote, optics. Again, something they're not at all concerned about with Trump. They remove Biden's name from document requests and ethics violation. Deputy AG Donahue also says they can't do anything overt with the investigation until after the election. Of course, we all became aware of it in October with the New York Post story, which the news media made out to be a Russian hoax. But, as we covered, there were all sorts of ways for anyone to easily verify it was genuine. October is also when the IRS was denied permission to do a walk-by of Hunter Biden's residence. Wolf acknowledges the laptop is genuine but decides to keep it from investigators and also acknowledges that there's more than enough for a search warrant, but they just weren't going to do it. She also denies their requests to participate in the briefing about the Burisma bribes. A week after the election is when Weiss joins the prosecution team and says any overt activity must be delayed because the election is being contested. In December, Wolf denies investigators' requests to question Joe Biden, and FBI headquarters tips off the Biden transition team. It's also the month where Wolf tips off Hunter Biden about the storage unit search warrant. 2021 is more delay, delay, delay after Biden takes office. In May, Schlapley files a sensitive case report which reads, 
This investigation has been hampered and slowed by claims of potential election meddling. Through interviews and review of evidence obtained, it appears there may be campaign finance criminal violations. A USA Wolf stated on the last prosecution team meeting that she did not want any of the agents to look into the allegation. She cited a need to focus on the 2014 tax year that we could not yet prove an allegation beyond a reasonable doubt and that she does not want to include their public integrity unit because they would not take authority away from her. We do not agree with her obstruction on this matter. That continues through July, August, and September when the IRS investigators plan interviews that Wolf puts a halt to. In October, she denies their request to interview Joe Biden's adult grandchildren because it will get them into, quote, hot water. The delays continue through 2022, missing deadlines and statutes of limitations. And I'm not even halfway down the page. The corruption continues and even escalates, including the prosecution team being told that charging Hunter would be, quote, career suicide. And in September, Wolf officially says to delay until after the midterms, quote, Why would we shoot ourselves in the foot by charging before the election? We get Weiss's contradictory statements officially saying he's completely in charge of the prosecution, but telling investigators he's not the deciding official on charges. He also officially said he will allow the statutes of limitations on the 2014 and 2015 charges to lapse. And 2023 just gets longer, even though we're not through the year yet. Again, every single one of them is footnoted to sources with links. Of course, whenever Merrick Garland or anyone else is hauled in front of Congress to be questioned about all of this, they all strangely seem to suffer from amnesia and can't remember anything. So let's not hear any more about how there's no evidence. This is everything. The corruption, the obstruction, the interference, the election manipulation, and the unethical misconduct of the Biden family and the Biden administration with regards to all of this. Do you have children or nieces or nephews? Are you homeschooling or just want to counter some of the socialist indoctrination most children get in school? If so, go to bogosity.tv slash Tuttle Twins and you'll be taken to a website where you can get some great books for elementary age children. The Tuttle Twins books are books about liberty and free market economics that include children's versions of Bastiat's The Law, Leonard Reed's I Pencil, and Hayek's The Road to Serfdom, as well as books about the Federal Reserve and how regulations protect business cronies. They'll learn about the harm caused by eminent domain or regulations passed in the name of safety and fundamental concepts of liberty. And as you can see from the sample pages on the website, they're all easy to read and nicely illustrated. They're just $9.99 a piece, or get a special discount as well as free bonuses when you purchase all five. You can even buy in bulk to donate to schools and local libraries. So get the Tuttle Twins books at bogosity.tv slash Tuttle Twins. And now it's time to factorize this week's biggest bogan emitter. And it's another for the World Health Organization for once again becoming the peddlers of pseudoscience. Honestly, why anyone thinks they're any kind of proper authority is beyond me. They posted the following on Twitter X, quote, 
For millions of people around the world, traditional medicine is their first stop for health and well-being. Which of these have you used? Acupuncture, Ayurveda, herbal medicine, homeopathy, naturopathy, osteopathy, traditional Chinese medicine, Unani medicine. They had the audacity to go on to say, quote, Traditional medicine is rooted in indigenous knowledges and natural resources of communities. It has been an integral resource for health in households for centuries. WHO works to strengthen the evidence base of traditional medicine, enhancing its safety and efficacy. WHO's traditional medicine program aims to build solid evidence base for policies and standards on traditional medicine practices and products, helping countries integrate it into their health systems and regulate its quality. Of course, none of that is true. It's all quackery, and it's dangerous to be peddling this crap. But they continue throughout the thread to mislead the readership and claim that traditional medicine is science-based, effective, and safe. Thankfully, a lot of the Twitterati, or whatever they're called now, was there to call them out on it, including the fact that some of these so-called traditional methods, like homeopathy and osteopathy, didn't exist until the 19th century. This was also pointed out in a community note. But in a follow-up tweet, they just made it worse. Quote, We heard your concerns and feedback around this post and agreed that this message could have been better articulated. The term traditional medicine is inclusive of traditional, complementary, and integrative medicine-slash-health and well-being systems. Our work aims to bring evidence and scientific validation around traditional medicine so that millions of people around the world who use complementary and traditional medicine understand whether it's safe and effective and are better protected. When scientifically validated, traditional medicine has the potential to bridge access gaps for millions around the world. By access gaps, we mean that too many people still can't afford or are unable to obtain the health care and tools that keep them safe. We welcome this feedback and are thankful to our audiences for being engaged on this topic. Health literacy is vital for science, solidarity, and solutions. This from the people who want to ban aspartame. Of course, they have it backwards. Science is not about providing validation for whatever crap you want to get behind. It's about discovering the ways that actually are valid. What they're talking about is the opposite of science. And here's something I didn't see pointed out. Even a lot of the other traditional practices aren't all that traditional. Acupuncture was practiced in China for a few centuries during the first millennium AD, but by the Song Dynasty, it had been considered irrational and relegated to the status of alchemy and shamanism. For centuries, it was considered a lost art and not as effective as more modern techniques. This continued up through the 19th century when it was banned in China in favor of science-based medicine from the West. For upwards of a thousand years, there was no real tradition of practicing acupuncture in China until 1949 when Mao Zedong came into power and created traditional Chinese medicine basically out of thin air, including acupuncture with various other practices the Chinese had long abandoned. In fact, Mao's own doctor had said it was crap, and as it turns out, Mao knew quite well and didn't take any of it himself. 
He only did it because under socialism, China had fared so poorly that actual medicine was just no longer an option. One of the biggest knockdowns came from the liver doc who tweet-exed, Your clarification is even worse than your initial post. Do you understand the meaning of science and pseudoscience? Pseudoscience, a collection of beliefs or practices mistakenly regarded as being based on scientific method. Every traditional medicine practice that you embarrassingly embraced in your original post, from Ayurveda to acupuncture to Unani to naturopathy, are all pseudoscientific practices, meaning they are primal therapies based on primitive, obsolete, and sometimes very stupid homeopathy principles. What evidence you're planning to derive from these unrealistic complementary and alternative medicines is beyond actual scientific reasoning. Because by definition, pseudoscience is incompatible with the scientific method, is characterized by contradictory, exaggerated, or unfalsifiable claims, relies on confirmation bias rather than rigorous attempts at refutation, lacks openness to evaluation by other experts, and is devoid of systematic practices when developing hypotheses, and continues to stick to shitty principles long after the pseudoscientific hypotheses have been experimentally discredited. You whole lot are confused between drug discovery from traditional practices and natural sources, which is a powerhouse tool of science-based medicine that has nothing to do with complementary and alternative medicines. Health literacy, your last sentence again, proves that you are a political organization and not a scientific one. Please stop patronizing pseudoscientific garbage. Again, do better. Right on, Liver Doc. And also there was a great response from Silver Cluon winner Miles Power, quote, For millions of people around the world, traditional medicine is their first stop for health and well-being. Which of these have you used? Black salve, MMS, turpentine therapy, Gerson therapy, urine therapy, rhino horn aphrodisiac, ozone therapy, chiropractic. And the emojis in the original post, like hands and leaves and pills, were replaced by things like skulls, ghosts, and sick faces. He also made a longer-form YouTube video debunking the whole thing, which is linked in the show notes. And remember, if any traditional medicine actually were shown to be effective, it would just be called medicine. When are people going to learn that governments are absolutely, completely, and totally unsuited for medical and other scientific endeavors? They are all authoritarian bodies, and authoritarianism is the absolute opposite of science. And there's all the difference in the world between science-based medical practitioners and politicians with a medical degree. So all of that makes the WHO this week's Biggest Bogan Emitter. I want to tell you about the eyeglasses I've been wearing for years. As people can see on my videos, I have a very strong prescription, which makes glasses more expensive, especially when I need computer glasses, reading glasses, prescription sunglasses, and most expensively, progressive lenses for general everyday wear. To save money while still getting quality glasses, I get them from Fermu. In fact, I just got a pair of progressives with high-index aspherical lenses and a nice pair of frames my wife loves for just over $100. It would have been $500 to get them through my eye doctor. 
Not only do they look good, the glasses are durable. I've worn many pairs for several years without problems. All orders come with a 30-day return policy, a three-month warranty, and one-on-one customer service. Go to Firmoo, that's F-I-R-M-O-O dot Bogosity dot TV, anytime you need quality glasses at a low price. Once again, that's firmoo.bogosity.tv. And now let's microfy this week's Idiot And this week it goes to Chicago Mayor Brandon Johnson for wanting to put the government in charge of grocery stores. After the city mismanaged things so badly that four Walmarts and a Whole Foods closed down, Johnson apparently thinks that putting the same city directly in charge of grocery stores would somehow work. Who in Chicago ever thought they'd miss Lori Lightfoot? Four other Walmarts are still open in the city, but they're continuing to experience difficulties. The company said in a statement, quote, The simplest explanation is that collectively our Chicago stores have not been profitable since we opened the first one nearly 17 years ago. These stores lose tens of millions of dollars a year, and their annual losses nearly doubled in just the last five years. As we looked for solutions, it became even more clear that for these stores, there was nothing leaders could do to help us get to the point where they would be profitable. I mean, if not even a Walmart can make money in your city, you're doing something wrong. Johnson said in a statement, quote, In the coming weeks, we will be taking a much closer look at the challenges we face and how we will address those challenges reasonably and responsibly and not on the backs of workers and working families. But pretty much everything the city does is on the backs of workers and working families. That's what happens when you have an insanely irresponsible government that spends way beyond its means. Things like inclusivity and equity mean nothing when the local economy is in the crapper. And that includes having a shortfall of over half a billion dollars in a budget of $16.7 billion. Steve Bolton, chair of the Chicago Republican Party, said, quote, Take all the problems private chains face in low-income areas, then add in amateur management by a bureaucracy, Chicago-style political corruption in hiring and contracting, and a limited range of products. Private chains should just pull out of all the neighborhoods because the city stores will have better police protection and lower prices subsidized by the long-suffering Chicago taxpayer. One of the big reasons is shoplifting, which according to the Chicago PD is up 25% over last year. That's money that's either lost to the store or that has to be passed on to the consumer in higher prices, which, first off, is the last thing they need in this inflationary period, and second, will just result in decreased sales anyway. But that laxity in the laws and law enforcement has made Chicago, along with New York and San Francisco, into what's been called shoplifter's paradise. Seriously, want to know how city-run stores would be? Just take a trip to the DMV. They'd probably be better off making groceries illegal and letting the black market take care of it. Seems to be working great with fentanyl. So all of that makes Chicago Mayor Brandon Johnson this week's... Idiot Extraordinaire! 
that wraps up this I Want Everything I've Ever Seen in the Movies edition of the Bogosity Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please go to donate.bogosity.tv for several ways to support and discord.bogosity.tv to join the discussion. Subscribe at Patreon or Subscribestar and you can listen early and ad-free. Thank you for listening. Remember, no podcast next week, so we'll see you in two weeks. Until then, here's a quote from PJ O'Rourke. Politics is the business of getting power and privilege without possessing merit. The Bogosity Podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution, not commercial, no derivatives, 4.0 international license. Bogosity.